0: hope this podcast episode finds you well thank you very much in advance for listening and welcome to episode 140 of the proper mental podcast with lucy nickel who is a writer and mental health campaigner And in Lucy's recent book, Snowflake, she takes a deep dive into some of the more harmful mental health stereotypes. And in this episode, Lucy and I chat about where these stereotypes come from and the impact that they can have. We chat about Lucy's own experiences with anxiety, more specifically health anxiety, and with panic attacks, and how the conversation around mental health has changed since she experienced these things as a teenager. We chat a lot about stigma and the stigma that surrounds mental health in general, but also what the word stigma actually means. And that's a really interesting part of the conversation. I think I say in the episode, this word stigma, we hear it all the time, right? Everyone's trying to smash the stigma. You know, men aren't speaking about their mental health because of the stigma. But what exactly is the stigma? You know, if we're going to smash anything, we need to actually know what we're trying to smash, right? So Lucy and I get into all of that. And we chat a bit about language and the words we use when we're talking about mental health and how the way we talk to each other matters just as much as what we're talking about. We talk about language and identity and compassion And some of the wonderful ways that young people are changing and impacting society and we explore some of the reasons why some people are so against that change and it was just lovely to chat to Lucy not just about mental health but about lots of other areas of society that can affect how we think and feel about ourselves and our place in the world which are ultimately all things that can really impact our mental health for the good or the bad and this is one of those episodes that goes all over the place we really explore some of this stuff it was a lot of fun I love talking about this stuff I love just getting into it Every time I talk about things like language and the words that we use and where they come from, I feel like I kind of learn a bit more. You know, my horizons are broadened somewhat, I suppose, and probably never get close to having any more of the answers. But it's a lot of fun to kind of explore and try and figure out how I feel about it all. And I hope this episode does the same for you. And I highly recommend Lucy's book, Snowflake. Yeah, it's really good. I learned a lot from it. It would definitely be the sort of book that would be really good if there's someone in your life who maybe doesn't understand mental health and mental illness. It'd be a good one to pass on to them for them to kind of be able to wrap their head around someone else's experience a little bit. But yeah, it's really good. I really enjoyed it. And like I say, I highly recommend it actually features um, a few people that you might recognize from the podcast. People like Johnny Benjamin... People like Claire Easton, Natasha Devons in there as well. There might even be one or two more. And they're all episodes that I'd highly recommend while I'm here recommending stuff. I knew I was going to get on with Lucy, partly because of the mental health stuff she does, but also she's a big music fan. And we kind of touch on that a little bit, but not too much in this episode. But she talks a lot about music on her socials, and a lot of her other books are kind of loosely music-themed as well as being loosely mental health-themed. So I knew we'd get on, and our, our politics and our views are very closely aligned. So it's probably worth me saying, if you are the sort of person that doesn't like listening to self-proclaimed woke snowflakes, having a bit of a chat and putting the world to rights, well, this probably isn't the episode for you. But of course, you're more than welcome to have a listen. Maybe don't leave it a review if you don't like what you hear. Anyway, everything you need to know about Lucy is in the episode notes. There's links there to her website and her socials and all that sort of stuff. Go and check it out. Give her a follow. All my stuff is in there too. And I think that's everything you need to know. This is episode 140 of The Proper Mental Podcast with Lucy Nickel. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy! So here we are with another episode of The Proper Mental Podcast and my guest this week is Lucy Nickel. How are you, Maze? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Maze I'm good. We're at opposite ends. We were chatting before, and you mentioned you had a really good night's sleep, and I had a bit of a rubbish one last night. So I think we're at opposite ends of the sleep spectrum chatting today. Oh so.
1: dear! I've <laughs> well, also loaded up on caffeine already, so uh, that could be a good or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's trying to find a tipping point, isn't it, with caffeine? You don't want to get jittery, yeah. but um yeah, it does not help like get you through a morning sometimes. But there we yeah. go. Yeah, <laughs> um, they, I think like today we're probably going to chat a lot about. Um, about sort of like stigma around mental health and, and the words that we use and our intentions for those words that kind of add or take away from the, the stigma. And I mm-hmm. thought a really useful place for us to start today would be with the word stigma because it gets sort of used so much in the mental health conversation. And sometimes it feels to me like it's a little bit like vague, you know, um, I see a lot mm. of posts and I say, men don't talk because of the stigma. And you of well, how does that help anyone? Right. What is the stigma? Um, and I know a lot of your, your writing has kind of been about this sort of stuff. Um, how do you kind of, how do you sum up the stigma around mental health? What does that word kind of mean to you?
1: Well, to me, it means it's misconceptions. So it's inaccurate. Views or ideas about mental health. And obviously, the word stigma itself um, implies, you know, shame. Um, And I think that the inaccuracies that we find that uh, when it comes to talking about mental health and the words that are used can make us feel very shameful for um, two reasons. I sort of see stigma on a spectrum because on the one end, you've got the idea that when somebody has a mental health problem, um, they are crazy or they are dangerous or they are violent or they are, you know, th- these awful, really stigmatizing ideas that are linked to mental health media portrayals over the years. But then more recently, as we've talked more and more about mental health, you've got the opposite end of the spectrum, which I think is equally harmful, is that, um, oh, you're just, you know, there's nothing really wrong with you. Everyone's jumping on the mental health bandwagon. Um, You know, you're just attention seeking. So I see stigma as being on a spectrum between there's nothing really wrong, you're making it up to um, this person's completely crazy, you can't trust them. Um, And so for me, it's just all along that it's about a misconception and perpetuating myths about mental
0: illness. Yeah. What a wonderful way to, to sum it up. That makes so much, um so much sense. And it's funny how this stuff like feeds into us, you know, like mm-hmm. there's the, all that thing we're coming from places like the media and um, even things like uh, I was reading a, a book recently and I can't remember the author's name. I should have written it down. Um, but it's one of those books is well-known like fiction series about like a um uh, he's a I can't remember what type of therapist he is but he's like catching killers as a therapist working with the police and it's one of those books that he says no, no no he's an American guy um ah. it'll come to me it'll come yeah. to me and it says on the front cover you know over one million copies sold and all this sort of stuff and then you like you read in this book and um every bad person in it it has some sort of mental illness you know they've all got a very like loosely mentioned personality disorder or schizophrenia or all sort of um labels and diagnosis that traditionally you know these these people are much more likely to cause harm to themselves than other people right the statistics Mm. show that um using the word commit around suicide that was like constant and um it's all through this book and that book is advertising it sold a million copies worldwide and you, you just kind of think wow that's how ingrained some of these uh these ideas around this mental illness and mental health um they're just just ingrained in the dna almost of society i suppose
1: yeah and i think it's easy for us to think that because things have got better like i mentioned the other end of the spectrum is now equally problematic in that we, we we can be too dismissive um but yes we have societies moved on a lot in terms of talking more about mental health which obviously has created different problems but that kind of stigmatizing is still very much there it's still very prevalent i put a complaint into um a, an online platform literally within the last sort of two or three weeks um where I saw an absolutely shocking, um, it was about a case in, in America. It was a really, really tragic case. Um, and I have no issue in terms of, you know, people, journalists promote, like not promoting, but re- reporting the facts of cases. There are some cases that involve mental illness that are absolutely tragic and where lives have been lost. However, they are always reported without context and that just I I just find it so incredibly irresponsible because there is the context of you know like you've just said most people who have experienced whatever mental health problem they're talking about are more likely to be vulnerable than anything else Um, but then also there's the context around that individual's case and experience and a lot of times these, you particularly find them on these websites with these kind of really sort of, you know, they sound like some kind of Hollywood movie trailer, the way they're big, it's it's sensationalizing, and it's just picking out the clickbaity things with no regard whatsoever for the context and, and the truth. Um, and so I think that is still a massive, massive problem. We see it, we still see it a lot with the organizations that I work with, we see it so much, and it's, it's, it's awful it, I, i've seen the impact that it has on people who are struggling with those experiences that are being talked about
0: yeah it's you know that whole clickbaity thing isn't it really mm. it's, it's kind of people just want that they're going to lead with the most shocking thing and don't think about the the wider shock waves that 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 mm. that causes you know it's um yeah yeah it's really tricky and and how we absorb that is fascinating to me something that i'd never even thought of until i started um doing this podcast and i was probably about like 30 or 40 episodes deep before it came up and that this idea of like self stigma right so yeah. the, i'd never heard of that and um when the guest i was speaking to was kind of like explaining how the the role self stigma played in them not asking for help i was like crikey that's a bit familiar that's a bit uh you know we take on board these horrible words and this horrible phrasing and this general idea where it's hinted at isn't it that these things are so bad we take it on board and use it against ourselves almost right
1: yeah well i think it's like we're like a sponge aren't we so we don't kind of realize we're sort of subconsciously taking all of this stuff in and our brains are and our you know emotions are sort of translating it into how we feel about ourselves and what we do about any of the sort of mental health challenges that we we face. And, you know, I, I've certainly I still experience it. There are times where, you know, if I touch wood, I've I've been relatively healthy from an anxiety I have an anxiety disorder I've been on medication for about eight years I've had lots of therapy Um, and I've been really relatively quite well I think for a while a few blips and things but kind of stable and um, when I haven't been I've had the whole oh my god this isn't this isn't just like normal anxiety this feels like crazy you know so I've had those like ideas that this is an ugly form of mental illness. This is, you know, this is just a bit beyond what's acceptable. I've had those awful feelings. And then at other times when I'm well, I think I feel like an imposter in the mental health community because in order to look after ourselves, you have to put some distance between, you know, say the panic attacks and things that I've experienced in the past or the obsessive thinking. so in so as you do that and you feel much better about yourself you kind of forget just how dark and distressing those moments can be and you think maybe i am just making it up maybe i you know so i think self stigma definitely definitely is it's something that we kind of soak up from what's around us we internalize it and it definitely impacts how we feel about ourselves and also whether we get help, whether we think we deserve help, whether we feel able to speak out about what we're going through.
0: Yeah. That's a, such an interesting point about, you know, like it's so hard to see when you are in a good place. It's so hard to, to remember, you know, you Mm -hmm. it sometimes feels to me like, um, like I'm talking about someone else, if I'm in a, in a good patch or, you know, when you've like, if you've had to wait a little while for a therapy appointment and you get there on a good day and you kind of sit there thinking, well, this is a waste of 50 quid.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I'm so with that because I have done that so many times where I've been on the phone to like local talking therapies to refer in, you know, the the GP might have said, you know, get yourself referred in. Um, And yeah, you wait. And when it comes around, you just think, I don't deserve this. Oh, my God, this is like NHS. I can't like I can't take this space up. And there have been times where I've cancelled it and then gone privately because i feel like i've well i had the chance i obviously felt better i got you know it definitely that is a huge thing for me
0: yeah
1: it's your mood and your experience like changes so much doesn't it over even days
0: yeah yeah completely yeah Yeah. Yeah. i remember when i when i first started struggling with my mental health and i had a bit of a, a breakdown my first one in 2016 and um I kind of struggled on for a while and I I'm self-employed now, but at the time I was working for the NHS and I was kind of like, my work was really going downhill and people were spotting that things weren't right. And I was pretending everything's fine. And they like talked me into going to some, some counts counseling. And I had to wait ages for the appointment. And then like, I got the afternoon off work so I could go and the sun was shining and I had the windows down and I had like a new CD on and I just kind of (laughs) cruised in and like sort of, you know, just chatted a little bit about my, you know, my life to this woman. And she was like, do you want to come back? I was like, no, I'm sound, you know, and I was just, I just drove home thinking, "Oh, this therapy stuff's great. I feel amazing, <laughs> you know." Yeah. But, but uh yeah, there is so much space, isn't there, when you when you're good to when you're bad and it, it's mm. hard to it's hard to remember. You have to keep telling yourself sometimes, I think, that, you know, yeah, I have been bad and I have been good and somewhere somewhere in between. But yeah, it gets complicated. Yeah.
1: It is, yeah. it is. Yeah, and stigma, self-stigma definitely plays a, a big role in that, a big unwelcome
0: role in it, I would say. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think, you know, when it's um, when it's people, like, reporting on stuff or when it's big brands, there's so much um, – it's just lazy, isn't it, really, to not use the right words and do things properly. Like, in, in this day and age, I think we've just got higher standards of what we expect from from those, those sort of things. Mm. It gets a, a much more interesting when it's um, – when it's just people and how like we talk to each other about mental health, because there's, I can't, I was thinking about it a lot with this conversation coming up. Like there's words that I would never use (laughs) particular diagnosis is, um, or particular labels that I would never use as an adjective. And I would work really hard to make sure that that, that that's not how I did it, but there's others I'm fine with, (laughs) you know? And I was kind of thinking, well, that's that, you know, why, why am I, I would never describe, you know, being organised as, you know, my OCD or something like that. But if someone said to me, like, oh, you know, I'm really depressed because, I don't know, my football team lost or I didn't get tickets for Blur last week or whatever, I'd be, um, you know, that wouldn't bother me at all. And it's funny, isn't it? Like, we all have our own relationships with these words as well, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that comes down to context as well. And I think, you know, there are certain... Um, instances where so for example I used to do a lot of work with the recovery community and 12-step program community in the northeast and um, I remember having this kind of argument with myself about whether or not I should use the 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 word addict when talking about someone because I used it and someone called me out on it and I was like oh but that's the that's the language that I'm used to but I was used to that language because the majority of the people I was working with were in recovery from addiction problems. And it is absolutely 110% their prerogative to, to describe themselves however they want to describe themselves. And, you know, a lot of people will joke about, you know, yeah, I'm sat here in a room full of addicts kind of thing, but that they are part of, you know, they self-identify So that's that's fine. But for me, I realised, you know what, it's probably not right for me to describe somebody else as an addict. That isn't right. It's not it's not fair. They are a human being. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be described as an anxious (laughs) if somebody was talking about me. So, you know, I'm still learning. I mean, this was probably about three Two or three years ago, when that kind of hit me, I was like, "Yeah, I should. I shouldn't say that." But some people, yeah, if some people want to describe themselves in certain ways, and also to use that kind of dark humor, you know, I I can sit and really laugh with a friend about some of the ridiculous and obsessive things that I've done in the midst of an anxiety attack, um, and and really laugh about them and and. You know, we can laugh together about them because we both recognise them and it it helps. But I wouldn't want somebody else to laugh at me for those things. So context, I think, is really important.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I suppose like meeting people where they're at, you know, like I kind of, you know, I speak to a lot of different people. And a lot of different people with different opinions on, you know, on their own experiences. And Mm. yeah, there's some people that you kind of, you can tell, can't you get a vibe and you think, oh, I can kind of, you know, I do have a bit of a dark sense of humor and I'm allowed to let that out a little bit here. And then there's other people you think they're not going to, they're not going to like that. And I want to be respectful of that. You know, we can kind of, you know, we don't have to use words or not use them, can't we? We can kind of like play around with them as suits the situation. That's kind of what words are for, I think.
1: I think intentions are really important thing to consider in the whole context thing, because, you know, if some, if I, if I heard somebody saying, oh, I'm so depressed that my book, I think I wrote something like that in Snowflake in, in the book. I wouldn't shout them down for it or, you know, I wouldn't, because I just think that's, that's wrong. There's no intention. I think that I would, I would, however, Want to play a role in um, raising awareness of what depression is, that it is a serious illness, um, you know, that it can be, it, 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 you know, it takes people's lives. It is, it is a very, very serious illness. Um, again, it can be on the spectrum, obviously. Um, but I think where I would call things out is where you can see intent. And you can see intent to shame or stigmatize, you know, and I think we've seen that with, you know, some big name TV presenters and people who um, have, you know, basically talked about the snowflake generation when people are talking about mental health problems and how it's not resilient. And, you know, back in my day, all of that stuff. Um, I would definitely call that out because that is challenging conversation around mental health and um, I think really playing into stigma and shame so yeah I think it's really important to consider consider intent as well because you wouldn't want to shame somebody and um, you don't know if somebody has unintentionally said something that's stigmatizing. you don't know what they're going through as well and if you were to call somebody out on social media And I don't know, encourage some kind of pile on. I mean, that would just be beyond terrible, wouldn't it? So, yeah, totally with you on that.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky one. I suppose we can only use the words that we have available to us, you know. Mm. And then, like, in theory, over time, as we explore something more than you you learn more words and then you, you can, yeah. you know, you can talk about it. The, my show is called proper mental. Cause that's how I would have described myself at one point when I was, when I was very, very ill, I did not know what was happening. I didn't know what mental health was. I just thought I was going fucking nuts. And that's, that, yeah. that's the only way that I could have said it at that time. That might not be how I would say it like now, even though I just did, but yeah, <laughs> but, no. but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, as we learn more, we can kind of ad- adjust, adjust. And that's how the conversation improves. I suppose. Mm.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: And and I suppose as well, it's interesting how you mentioned intent as well, because we don't something that I'm very conscious of is that a lot of the times with like cancel culture and outrage on social media, I do think that conversations tend to happen at the extreme ends, don't they? So there's mm-hmm. the people that are really for something and there's the people that are really against something. And then there's all these people in the middle that they're not really sure where they stand but they're really scared to ask the questions because they're worried that if they get something wrong, they're going to get piled on. And then conversations don't move forward. Right. Then no one's talking about their mental health because there's this, you know, there's a load of people, like you say, if anyone talks about mental health well then they're a snowflake. And then there's another group of people that are all like, you know, you can't, you know you can't say that you're nuts and then there's so many people get caught in the middle isn't there that can't when we just deal in extremes um yeah it's hard to for people to everyone feel like they can get involved in the conversation
1: yeah and I think that if you so like where I because I talk a lot about mental health stigma I write a lot in the media I think that you know I'm in a position where people have every right to pull me up if I do say something that happens to be stigmatizing you know as I say, still learning. I say this in the book, I'm still learning every day. I'm not like the expert on stigma. Um, It's something I'm very, very passionate about and still learning about. And so I think I do have a responsibility to really think about the words that I use. And if people call me out, I don't take that personally. I totally get that. And I also know that some people who have called me out wouldn't necessarily call out somebody else who had said the same things if they weren't working in the mental health. So, you know, I've heard people, you know, when people talk about suicide and use the phrase commit suicide now, I have challenged that when it's in the media, when it's in something that's been written for one of my the mental health organisations that I work for, I would make sure that it's picked up there. Um, And when I've been with a colleague and going into a meeting with a mental health organisation and they've used that phrase, then I would gently say that's something to be careful of because we're working in this sector. But um, yeah, I think when it's, when there's no intention and that person isn't kind of in the position whereby they are, um, talking authoritatively, if you like, about mental health stigma, and then just have to be careful about how you challenge it. I think, you know, calling people out publicly is not always a good thing.
0: <laughs> no, not not at all. Yeah, no, I spoke no. to a um, uh, an empath coach called uh, Chris Hemmings, who does a lot of work around men's masculinity, and something mm. that he said to me that stayed with me ever since, he said, don't call people out, call people in. And, Mm, you know, like, it's it's beautiful, isn't it? And, you know, like, sometimes if if you're, like, I don't even want to use the phrase calling out, but if you're making someone aware of something and you do it in a nice way, well, for me, sometimes it's a really nice moment. If someone points something out to me and I think, oh, wow, that's like, you know, like, thank you for pointing that out. And, Mm. like, you know, it can be, like, a nice, like, shared learning moment also. Like, not everything has to be, like, angry tweets and chaos, does it? We can just, like, learn from each other.
1: And I think we need to I think we have a responsibility to because it, with social media and the immediacy of it, everything is so reactive, isn't it? And, you know, I know when I've been when I have been called out for something that I've said that's not come across right or whatever, your immediate gut reaction is, oh, my God. And I think it's because more than anything, you feel angry yourself. You feel angry um, and embarrassed that you've you've done this. Um, but if you react too quickly it can come across as defensive, and I think that's where people dig themselves in holes and then the more they dig and dig and dig the more extreme what they say in response becomes and I think we see that not just in mental health but in lots of sort of societal conversations Um, and that's where like you're saying you just get these extremes and and it's really it's really difficult and you know, I, I I know within my family, we have, um, you know, myself and my parents, we have very, very different views. And I've definitely become too emotive and extreme in the way that I, I argue with them. So I'm still learning. I'm still learning how to do that as you know in a more appropriate way. Um they'd tell you I'm a right pain in the ass when I get on my <laughs> soapbox about something. Um but yeah I am still learning not to be as hot headed. Um but yeah it's it's social media is really, really hard for that. And I just think we just have to remember to take a moment to just kind of pause and reflect why why do we feel so angry? Is it because we're angry that, that person has dared call us out or is it because
0: we're actually a bit disappointed in ourselves yeah, yeah yeah definitely no one um no one likes having the mirror held up you know sometimes exactly. and you don't always like what you see yeah definitely yeah. I always think that th- there are some benefits I'm a very anxious person there's um a lot of benefits to anxiety if I've on the rare occasion like I tweet or post I don't post much outside of like podcast stuff but i, I you, you know i've looked at that i've t- retyped it seven times i've looked at it from nine different angles, more angles than anyone else could so i'm pretty sure yeah a bit to something that uh yeah i've, I've fine tooth combed it yeah but um I don't yeah. do
1: that unfortunately i'm a bit too
0: <laughs> just go for it
1: curious on the on the keyboard so <laughs> yeah I have uh, to rain
0: myself in some oh the answers normally lie somewhere in the middle don't they somewhere yes. Between the two. yes yeah uh, where does your um your interest and your your passion for this sort of stuff come from Lucy like what um what inspired you to write about stigma and, and the words that we use
1: so I think stigma is particularly of interest to me because I worked in PR so I did a lot of work with the media and obviously stigma is very much about you know representations in media and popular culture um so I think it kind of crossed over into what I was interested in professionally um but also I started to become interested funnily enough I I was experiencing panic attacks from a very very young age and had numerous doctor appointments and therapy appointments and it's funny how even though I knew after all of those appointments that uh, it was a mental health issue or that it was an Anxiety disorder. I just didn't connect mental health and what panic. I don't know why. It was just something that took a long time for me to get my head around. And um, I was working in um, higher education with academics um, in sociology and health. And then I was working in housing um, and working directly with people in supported accommodation. And I realized at that point, how big of an issue stigma was, but also that I was kind of encouraging people to share their stories and I hadn't shared mine. And I actually did have some really bad experiences of bullying and discrimination relating to my mental health issues. Um, So I think all of those things combined is what drew me to um, Time to Change when the National Times Change campaign was running. And um, I I applied to join their story camp that they run in London for bloggers and bloggers and people who want to share their um, story. And I just got so involved in it. I ended up then, I think the next story camp I was presenting at or delivering a workshop for because I just became so involved in it and so passionate about it. so, yeah, I think it's come from a mixture of my own personal experience and the fact that I've worked with the media for so many years, too many years to count. Um, but that's why stigma became really interesting to me.
0: Yeah. It's, um, it's fascinating what you said there as well about sort of not putting together mental health and panic attacks, not linking mm. those two things. But I think that's really, really common and possibly down to down to you know stigma and media and things that we've just talked about you know you think of mental health being one thing and then you don't realize yep. that it is all these different things that are very very you know that ebb and flow and is very different to um you know to to pin down and find words for and um but yeah i think that's really common that people are like i'm experiencing this but this isn't a mental health thing this is something else that's like you know yeah i think a lot. oh of
1: yeah and you try to i mean in one of my uh novels so um the 27 club that I wrote which is about um media sensationalism and myths around um people in the music industry and how we use headlines to describe really complex human problems that sounds very serious and academic it's actually a dark comedy (laughs) but but it does sensitively explore mental health problems and um the main character in that Emma she has an anxiety disorder um and all the way through it because it's set in the 90s when conversation which is when I started experiencing panic attacks um and these conversations weren't happening as much and so she's she's kind of admitting that she's got this problem but she's like I must have a vitamin deficiency I wonder if I need to be eating more broccoli I wouldn't you know like I wonder if I've got low blood pressure so And that's kind of how I felt I mean I suppose with me because it started manifesting as health anxiety and it was a lot of the public awareness campaigns you know public health campaigns that really triggered health anxiety in me um that um yeah I was always I was looking at the symptoms so I was looking at the the you know so a panic attack I would have palpitations I might feel faint, I might sweat, my stomach might feel upset. I was looking at all those symptoms and trying to link it to a physical reason. And then, of course, linking it to a physical reason just reinforced my health anxiety because then I'd think I had more things wrong with me. So it was, but it's a a bit of a vicious cycle. And I think the more that I found, if I talk about, health anxiety, if if, if I'm going through an obsession over some kind of health anxiety and I put something out on Twitter, I find it so, so helpful because I'm talking about the anxiety and other people relating to what I'm going through actually helps calm that anxiety down because it's easier for me to, while it's very frustrating living with anxiety, it's easier to deal with it if you face what it really is whereas if I start saying you know oh I think I've got this cancer or this heart problem or you know without acknowledging the context of anxiety around it I'll just fuel the anxiety because people will then think well this is somebody with a heart problem I will start to (laughs) it's not I have an an anxiety disorder so um, yeah I think it I think we do sometimes try to look for physical reasons rather than seeing that the the physical symptoms are the result of a mental health reason, if that makes sense
0: yeah it makes perfect sense yeah yeah because any anything's only happening in the body because your brain's told it to right whether you whether that was a, a conscious decision or not essentially the, mm. you know nothing happens without the, the brain making that that decision but yeah we don't always think of it and um yeah it's a it's fascinating actually you mentioned there you know being able to have relatable conversations on the internet or whatever about these sorts yeah. of things because you can build your own community online right but in the 90s your community was like your mates you knocked around with and you don't know then do you like no one knows what this stuff is you don't know who you can tell who you can trust um it's it's very different how that how that has changed since since then right
1: yeah because even with my friends like we didn't talk about it because it was too we didn't know what it was it was felt you know a bit shameful and I remember going to the pub with a couple of friends in our sort of early 20s and the three of us kind of all admitted and I remember us being a little bit teary because it was such relief talking about it because it had never been talked about we admitted some of the panic attacks that we'd grown up with as teenagers and never dared talk about to anyone and yeah it was such a relief but in all those years this was the first you know I'd only ever spoken to my mum and my doctor and my therapist you know yes. so yeah so it's, it wasn't even just not having the means to reach people and have those conversations it was that the stigma and the lack of understanding was so great back then
0: yeah yeah it's unbelievable really like there's so much for a young person to to carry isn't it you know and mm-hmm. when i, I think about, i think we're a, a similar age lucy you know i was a teenager in the 90s and mm. you know like it wasn't the easiest time and i come to i kind of think like i don't know the worst thing i could have been was like different to everybody else you know because when you're a teenager and you want to kind of get under yeah. the ra- particularly an anxious one right you want to kind of get under the radar a little bit and not stand out and and that sort of stuff so yeah to to be able to sit around and say i've been experiencing this that's um yeah, yeah. That would have been very useful and mental health in the in the 90s you know it, it makes you think doesn't it how how many people would have been struggling with things and not been able to say just because there wasn't awareness campaigns and there wasn't anyone to talk to like you say other than the doctor and maybe your parents if you were l- like lucky enough to be able to have that conversation and um yeah it's you know there's a a lot of um You know, there's a lot of pros and cons for social media, but being able to find a community and and communicate and and share that and know that you're not alone is a a really important thing, isn't
1: it? Definitely. And it's when you see those comments, you know, I've seen comments before when I was challenging a well-known TV presenter about something that was said um, about mental health on on the tv that morning and you know the people responding like their followers responding saying um there was no such thing as mental health in my day which I just find really interesting for two reasons obviously one mental health is just something that we've always had every single person has it's like yeah there's a big difference between mental health and a mental health problem or mental illness but also when you think about the extremes of you know, way back when I, so when I wrote Snowflake, I interviewed a historian who um, has done lots of studies around like Bedlam or Bethlehem Hospital, and um, she's called Catherine Arnold, and it's so fascinating, but also so tragic to know that people with mental health problems, um, they were probably diagnosed with very different, like, names and labels back then so yeah we might say people didn't have depression no they were they were told they were melancholy or they were told they were um I don't know something that basically just put them into an asylum because I don't know if they were if they were um unable to get out of bed or something and then and then they might have been put into an asylum and pretty much locked up oh and then and then members of the public can pay to come in and stare at you like no mental health problems didn't exist at all back in the day <laughs> like, yeah, people just got on with it people actually got locked up for having a mental health problem so it just astounds me when people say that I think the terminology was completely different the response by society was completely different um and um you know those poor people who we're unable to kind of mask any mental health problems. We're treated like animals. Yeah. So it's just it's just absolutely bizarre that people think this is a new thing, and we're all jumping on the bandwagon. It's, you know, mental health is on a spectrum, and the more we talk about where we are on that spectrum, the more interventional we can be in our in our approach. The less people will reach crisis point. So yeah. yeah
0: yeah it's uh, it's, just the world looks a bit differently when you look at it through the lens of mental health you know I often Mm -hmm. think of um like I suppose from when I was growing up like local characters we would have thought of them as yes you know and now like now I look and I think oh yeah that person was probably like really unwell you know or you know and um, maybe some of them were um I I was actually talking about this on a Uh, And an episode like the other day, uh, and we're sort of saying it doesn't really matter how unwell they were as long as they were happy and safe. And you know, like, (laughs) um, but yeah, you kind of we all had these characters in the local area that we kind of Mm -hmm. were just known and look, oh, there's so and so talks to himself or who does weird things in the town center. And it was just kind of accepted. But they were probably quite unwell. And then, of course, everyone from that time is saying, oh, mental health doesn't exist. It's all it does. It's right there, right in front of your eyes. You just got to, you know, you just laugh at it instead or, you, you know, like yeah. don't have compassion for it.
1: Yeah. And I always think like um, about so that I think there's something as well about whether it is. Why, why it is sometimes viewed as a weakness to want to live a better quality of life. I find that fascinating. It's like with menopause these days. um, We're all talking more about menopause. And so you have some people of an older generation, like, I don't understand why you have to. We just got on with it. It's like, okay, that's commendable. You, You got on with it. But we don't have to just lump it. Like, if we can make our lives better, if we can use, I don't know, HRT or you know nutrition or whatever like or exercise to help us sleep better at night and not have burning hot feet and restless legs and hot sweats like why wouldn't we why would it make us weak to look for a you know better quality of life and I think that's you know it's with mental health problems generally why suffer in silence why just put up with panic attacks It doesn't make you more resilient. It makes you more tired. (laughs) Like, why exhaust yourself by having to deal with these horrible symptoms or, you know, feel like your behaviors are feeling uncontrollable when there are ways and means in which to better manage them? It's to me that is not a weakness, that is wanting more from life. And that's a
0: good thing. It's a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> it's easy to like, you know, it's easy to suffer to have that type of extreme resilience, funny word resilience, isn't it? But yeah. Um, to have that like extreme resilience when there's no other choice. <laughs> well then, like, yeah, like you say, of course you suffered through, but you had no other option, but yeah, why wouldn't you take other options? Why wouldn't you take help? And it's not just about the now, is it? It's about the next people, you know, yes. like people will yeah. be, you know, getting diagnosed with things or going into the menopause every single day so the more yeah. we can talk about things and like talk about treatment options and shine a light on things well it, it, it's better for you know society to come as well it's not just about us now is it it's about what's coming up
1: and i think that's really important because i see that about young people day who i think get a really hard time um generally with this whole snowflake generation you know conversation and you know there are certain things that I don't understand because I don't have the lived experience so when we think about um, the sort of identities within the LGBTQ community for example the way I have to look at that is whilst I personally don't have the lived experience to understand that this is about other people's rights other people's identities and if this is what, you know, if if certain labels or identities is what works for them to find their community, to live as their true self, just because I don't get that and I don't personally benefit from that, why should I criticize that? And I think that's the same across mental health. So if we see the younger generation, um, because obviously I'm I'm 45 now, so you know, I, I look at the younger generation, I've got a 25. 5 year old stepson and I don't completely understand everything that they do I mean for God's sake I sometimes look at his uh, Instagram stories and feel like he's speaking in a different language like I don't get it because they are a different generation they have different ideas some of their values are different but they are our future so why should we if it's not negatively impacting us or if it just takes a little bit of consideration to um, help that generation do and live how they want to live, why, why shouldn't we? What harm is it doing to us? Um, so it's going slightly off track, I suppose, there, but I think that's a societal, a sort yeah. of a broad societal yeah, issue. But that whole live and let live thing, really, like why are we so quick to? snowflake generation label everybody and complain about the way you know different generations are because they are our future and they've they've had different life experiences than we have
0: yeah well as you get older you're not supposed to understand young people that's how it works that's the circle of life you're supposed to hear music and go oh that sounds awful (laughs) you're not supposed to enjoy it because it's not yours you had your you whatever was when we were growing up that was ours you know and like they've got to have their 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 things but it's the same with everything and you you know we we have to really talk about the word um snowflake because obviously the the title of your of your book and it's a word that hold such like heavy connotations it's bad depending on who uses it like but it it it's it's an in, it's used as an insult now by a certain yeah. demographic of people and um yeah I it's it's hard to understand you know like why there's so much people fighting against living in a compassionate caring society i you know like it, it just it's a it's such an un, unusual thing isn't it the the anger yeah. that that's directed um yeah that kind of what that word means when certain people use it
1: yeah so i think so snowflake is obviously as we were just talking about broader than mental health but it has been used um specifically in in mental health conversations and people being called snowflakes because they are talking about their mental health problems or because they are recognizing a mental health problem um and the idea being that they're a delicate little snowflake who can't function in the world and it's just absolute rubbish and i think it goes back to what i was saying like if there are ways of means in which to live a healthier happier life why not take them that doesn't make you weak and it doesn't make you a snowflake it makes you stronger it makes you more resilient and i think that's what younger people are doing today and i think that's generally what we're all doing today you know if i put something out on twitter saying i'm really struggling with my health anxiety um I'm worried about this, I'm feeling this, anyone else relate. You could call me an attention seeker if you want, I don't care. Actually, what I am getting from people with their shared experiences, it's an online sort of peer support in a way, is beneficial. So I'm doing something that is good for me, good for my soul, and good for my well-being. Um, so this idea of twisting that, turning it around, to call it weak and snowflakey is just ridiculous to me. (laughs) And I always, always love that, you know, that um many snowflakes make an avalanche. And I just think, you know, the the younger people will be, you know, that younger generation will be kind of taking over some of the most influential jobs. My stepson's friends have all just qualified as junior doctors and, you know, they'll be treating us. They'll be and, and to to be completely frank, I'm absolutely delighted that they hold the values that they do and you know they've created this culture that I think is much more generous of, of spirit than older generations I have to say and I'm not talking about everybody um at all I've you know I've got um amazing friends in their 70s who do brilliant sort of campaigning and activism and standing up for others rights and stuff but I I just think if we're talking about the sort of generational divide there definitely is one because lots of people are saying young people today they don't know they were born life's so much easier it's not it's different it's not easier it's different that's how I see it so you know I I I wasn't as politically Sort of overwhelmed when i was a teenager as what i saw my stepson was who was absolutely distraught when donald trump got in was absolutely distraught when brexit happened um and yes we hold largely similar political views but they're not they're definitely not the same we do have some you know heated debates and things so it's not just that it's come from us um and he he had those heavy burdens because he was so connected to social media, whereas I didn't have to pick up a newspaper or watch a TV show, watch the news when I was a teenager. So those things I could just bury my head in the sand and pretend they weren't happening. You can't do that now. So, yeah, they've got running water and <laughs> you know they can they can buy nice lattes from Costa. Yeah. Yeah, they can. Um But there are other things that I think are are more challenging. They're just different.
0: Yeah, very much so. Do you think that um, it's something I kind of think about myself, but i was interested in your experience of it. But how um, mental health struggles of any sort, um, for me, it made me a much more compassionate person after I was poorly it was a, a wonderful side effect and I, I wouldn't say I was particularly um uncompassionate you know it wasn't a, a like a complete like personality like 180 but I think um there's something very human about everything that comes with struggling with your mental health and it certainly helped me to see the human in other people I don't yeah. know if that's something that's come up for you before
1: yeah and I think it's something to do with kind of as you learn about yourself and your um You know, we're all flawed, we're not perfect, we sometimes struggle with things, Um, we have vulnerabilities. I think the more you kind of learn that about yourself and accept that about yourself, um, you can sort of drop your guard, you can drop your front. And I think that makes you better able to connect as a human being and allows you greater compassion and empathy with others. I think if we are, you know, if we're constantly striving to have this kind of stiff upper lip persona, you're not really letting anyone in and you're not letting your vulnerabilities out. And I don't see how you can have a deep connection if you do that. So I definitely think that learning and having kind of greater insight into your own mental health definitely helps with that social connection.
0: Yeah, when you're kind of at the, at the bottom of something, you realise how little matters, you know, and there's a real yeah. like, humanness to that. And, you know, there's so uh, my tolerance for small talk and for, you know, for things that just don't really matter, because they don't really exist. You know, that's, that's definitely something kind of that that came out, you know, came yeah. out for me yeah and I wanted to ask you about the book that you've got coming out Lucy because I watched the trailer the other day of the the (laughs) girl in the calf and getting on the bus and I was like crikey that's a bit that's a bit familiar (laughs) uh, like as into the you know I'm a I'm a very no worries if not person but that's the title of your of your new book right
1: yes so um yeah how many emails do you end with the words no worries if not oh my god I was ending everything with it um it's it's so it's it's a rom-com and it's it's you know there's it's it's got lots of ridiculous storyline in it it's so much fun but the message is actually you know why do we apologize so much why do we spend our lives apologizing and you know how can we break away from that and i think that you know certainly when i look back i i remember having an appraisal at work um the former line manager who's now a good friend of mine called Eve and one of the things she kind of called me out on was the fact that I always apologised before sharing an idea so if we were having like a I worked in a theater company in Hull and if we had a creative meeting like marketing meeting if I had an idea I'd say sorry I know this is probably stupid in fact we probably can't do it but I don't even know why I'm mentioning it. I'm just gonna say it anyway, but it's crap. Like, and I would, I would do that. And and the kind of what, what she made me realize was that not only is it just a case of why are you apologizing, why do you feel you have to apologize, you're actually selling yourself short because you're kind of setting yourself up to fail. You're kind of saying, I've got a bad idea, don't listen to it. You know, it's it's not selling your idea very well and I think it's the same about everything if you apologize you're putting yourself no if you apologize when you don't need to you're instantly putting yourself on the back foot, aren't you like you know somebody runs over your toes with their trolley and Tesco's and you apologize to them or somebody knocks into you and spills a drink on you and you apologize to them it's you get oh, you get like a meal delivered in a cafe or something, and it's absolutely terrible. And you say sorry, but <laughs> this cheese on toast—you haven't melted the cheese. Like, you know, why? Why do we apologize for everything? So I think it's about kind of wanting to own your space and your right, but it's about the main character's exploration of—you know—she decides to give up saying sorry for a year she's like I'm never saying sorry again at least for a year that's it I'm not apologizing again but on the journey she kind of realizes that there is a place for the apology but it's not every day in every single situation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. At least get it wrong first, right? And then, yeah, and then exactly. apologize. Yeah. yeah. Where do you think that comes from, Lucy? Where does it come from in you? Is that generational? Is that anxiety? I was trying to think because I'm very much that type of way. My current um homework in therapy is to be more immediate. That's my uh yeah. is to kind of, you know, just say things and not not wait at the back and, you know, spit my words out, that type of stuff. I don't know whether that's you know anxiety whether it's you know my era i'm not sure where where do you think that comes from because there is a lot of big demographic of people that um yeah you sorry and really long text messages that's something i try and i try and do now like i don't explain every decision within an inch of its life it's like say say it in two lines and you know yeah and it's up to the the recipient then what they go and do and that's out of my control right
1: yeah, so I think there's probably a couple of things. I think there's like internally, um, our internal influences. So I think with me, it's self esteem, lack of confidence kind of issue. But I think there's also, um, and whilst, you know, it affects men and women, boys and girls, I do think that women have a tendency to apologize more. And so I think there is a societal thing there a sort of culture of um just kind of the sort of dynamics in the workplace and things like that and you know there's this whole thing that i always look at like because i love music uh, i love 90s music and if you look at anything where a woman has done well or a woman is outspoken so think about courtney love who is not a, she's not perfect, like she sometimes gets it wrong, you know, whatever every single human being does. But you know, Courtney Love is constantly criticized for uh, apparently not writing her own music, apparently, Kurt Cobain did it, but riding on the success of Nirvana. But do people say that about male bands, like male fronted bands? Do they? Um, And I think as well, the fact that she is so outspoken, it is criticised and she's seen as a difficult woman. Um, You know, people call her crazy. People call her, you know, all these things. But I just think when men behave in that way, they're more likely to be called driven or ambitious or, you know. So I do think, I think like, rock music is a really really good way of looking at it you also have to i mean i'm no musician i can't sing or play anything i just like listening to music but when i think about like sort of female fronted or female bands they're always having to compare themselves to each other and you often find you know people saying oh who's the best Hole or babes in toyland well, no one says who's the best babes in toyland or rage against the machine like <laughs> why 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 is there not this equal playing field? So I think that the apology in women comes from that almost like, I don't know if I deserve to be in this space, so I'm going to apologise before I elbow my way in. And I don't think we should be doing that. And I think for anybody who's interested in this from a feminist standpoint, look at the Spark Company's T-shirt slogans. If you Google the Spark Company... Um, you've got like things like, uh, your insecurities were made in a boardroom full of men and, um, we are the granddaughters of the witches you tried to burn. And, and it's just all of their t-shirt and mug slogans and stuff are just absolutely brilliant. And to me, just kind of really feed into, um, really feed into the, um, the topic of, of the book. So, yeah, yeah, I do. So I think there is something about our personal, self-esteem confidence anxieties but also a bit of a societal thing where women are concerned
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense and to kind of like bring it full circle you know those boardrooms you're talking about are full of the the demographic of men that are throwing that snowflake world word around right so it's kind of it's no kind of coincidence that all of this stuff kind of uh all feeds feeds into each other um... exactly
1: and and I made sure whenever I write books as well um because I have experienced you know I've experienced bullying at the hands of men in more senior positions so you know that pisses me off but there are so many brilliant men in my life you know my husband my stepson like you know people out there like who really help lift you up um Dave Haslam the writer and Hacienda DJ who has helped platform my writing by buddying up with me for an event and Robin Ince who's sort of shouted about like my books and who's who's quite happy to shout about how great women's fiction is and you know so I always make sure in my writing that I have some really well-rounded male characters but I do often show some characters that are the the kind of the terrible side of the patriarchal society because i've experienced it and i know so many other women have as well so
0: yeah it's another part of that shift you know we were talking before about mm-hmm. young people and the like the generational shift is you know people are sort of realizing that the patriarchal society it doesn't serve anyone it doesn't serve men or women exactly but- whoever's winning you know whoever's quote unquote winning because the rules are in their favor well of course they don't want to change the rules (laughs) like it just makes perfect of course they don't want to do things differently like they're doing very well from it but you know that's how it goes oh mate well yeah i'll look forward to that and i'll put all the links and everything in the episode notes to this um, thank you so much for your time today mate it was so much fun to chat i know it was lovely to meet you angie
1: thank you so much
0: A big up to the proper mental podcast. (laughs) A podcast.
1: A proper mental podcast.